You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, We are this spring looking at five chapters in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17. What's unique about these chapters is it all takes place on one night. This is the last night that Jesus has with his disciples before his death. And so today we're gonna be in John 15, right in the middle of it. It's on page 848 in the black Bibles in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those, open up to it. I would love for you to follow along as we're working our way through it. Um, I've had a few conversations recently, just like in the last week, where three different people said the same thing to me in our conversations. And we were talking about work and family and, and home life and church life, all kinds of things. But they all said this, they all said, I just want to be useful. And every time it just struck me as like such a sincere, core human longing. I just want to be useful. Two weeks ago, I was at a lunch that was almost everyone there was um, a founder of a company or a CEO of a company. Uh, You could just sort of feel the entrepreneurial energy in the room. I can see some of you wondering, why why were you there? Uh, It's... (laughs) It's a fair question. I think most of the people I met that day were also wondering what I was doing there. But all of this has just reminded me that we live in a city that is just charged with ambition. We wanna do things. And I think that's reflected in this room. Like you guys are doing things. You're starting companies. Uh, You're raising kids. You're getting graduate degrees. You're out there doing stuff. And all of that really just reflects this core human longing. We want to be useful. We want to be productive. We want to be successful. And you know what? There's something really good about that. We were made to do great things. God's first command to humans is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And that theme of fruitfulness runs through the scriptures. It represents life and abundance and multiplication and blessing and even wisdom and righteousness. This is the stuff we were made for. And Jesus picks up on this. Here in John 15, he says that the mark of his followers will be that they bear much fruit. Paul affirms it in Ephesians 2, right after the famous verse where it says we're saved by grace and not by works. He also says, but we're God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And so the question we're asking today is, how do we do this? How do we bear fruit? How do we get the power and the wisdom we need to walk in these works that God has prepared for us? And the answer in John 15 is short and sweet. The answer is, abide in me. When we think about being productive or fruitful, we think about rolling our sleeves up and making it happen. We think about working our connections and and getting it done and making strategic plans with smart goals, the whole thing. And that's all fine, but that's not the kind of fruit Jesus is talking about. The kind of fruit Jesus is talking about is not something that we can just make happen. It doesn't really have to do with our connections. It has everything to do with being connected to him. If we wanna truly be fruitful, we must learn to abide 
in Christ. All right, so what does that mean? To help us understand what this means, Jesus gives us an image, and he gives us an invitation and some instructions. The image is of a vineyard. The invitation is to abide in him, and then there's some instructions, which we'll get to, about how to do it. So let's talk about the image. It's the image of a vineyard. John 15, verse one. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Uh, The vineyard imagery was really common in the Old Testament, so when Jesus says to the disciples, I'm the true vine, they immediately would have thought of a number of passages and images from the Old Testament. I'll give you just a few examples so you can get a sense of it. In Psalm 80, for example, in this Psalm, Israel has been judged for her unfaithfulness and the psalmist is crying out to God to restore Israel and he appeals to the vineyard imagery. This is what he says. He says, you, Lord, brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. He's he's talking about Israel. God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the promised land where they could flourish. But, But instead, verse 12, he says, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along pluck its fruit? And so what was meant to be a fruitful vineyard now lies in ruins and the psalmist is asking God, will you do something about it? Isaiah 5, God here is depicted as the owner of a vineyard and he has tended carefully to the vineyard. He's watched over it. But when he went to reap, he found wild grapes. And there's a question posed in in the text. Whose fault is this? Is this the owner's fault or is this the vineyard's fault? And verse seven explains the image and gives us the answer. In Isaiah 5, it says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the Lord looked for justice in this vineyard, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God expected from Israel the good fruit of justice and righteousness, but instead he found the wild grapes of bloodshed and cries for help of injustice and unrighteousness. And so in Isaiah 5, the owner tears down the vineyard. Israel's judged. One more, Hosea 10. Hosea says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. And the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Now these are not good altars. These are altars that are being built to false gods. And so what's happening is the more prosperous Israel becomes, the more idolatrous they become. I think we know a little something about that in our culture. And again, the Lord, it says the Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So throughout the Old Testament, Israel is God's vineyard. And in most cases, it's talking about Israel's failure to be fruitful and the judgment that comes from God afterward. And so it's against that backdrop that Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the true vineyard. 
Uh, I know that some of you are new to the Bible, new to church, you're, you're interested in the teachings of Jesus because he's obviously an important historical figure, but I just want you to see here that this is more than just crafty teaching. This is more than just a good use of a metaphor. Jesus is claiming something about himself, and the claims that he makes about himself, put the ball back in your court. You gotta decide what to do with them. He is claiming to be true Israel, the righteous and faithful one, the head of a new humanity. What he's saying is that God's purposes for the salvation of the world now reside in Christ, and God's people are those who are connected to him, to the true vine. The image is giving us a picture of our relationship with Jesus. It's not just a transaction of propositions and beliefs. It's organic. We're, we're like branches. You're grafted into, united to, connected to a vine. The other part of the image here is the vine dresser. Verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. So the vine dresser's expectation for the branch is that it bears fruit. And if a branch does bear fruit, he cuts it, which does, that sounds counterintuitive. He, but if you're familiar with gardening, or like me, if you've watched a YouTube video on gardening, then you know what he's talking about. He's talking about pruning. Have you ever um, driven out in the hill country by the vineyards? Sometimes they're beautiful, but if you go out after they've been pruned, it looks like a disaster. It looks like the, the, the owner of the vineyard tried to kill it because debris is just everywhere. The plants are bleeding. I mean, it's not good. And if you don't know what's going on, you're like, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Sometimes we don't see the whole picture of how God's pruning us and we think, God, you don't know what you're doing, but he knows what he's doing. He knows that if he cuts back that which hinders us, we will grow even more, we will be even more fruitful. And he uses things that don't feel good to do that. Suffering, trials, exposing our sin and idolatry. None of that feels good. You don't have to pretend that it does feel good, but you can embrace it. You can embrace any circumstance, really, as God's pruning, as an opportunity for growth. You just have to remember that this is the vine dresser's work. He prunes. If a branch doesn't bear any fruit at all, it's because it's not really connected to the vine. And here it says God throws it out. It's thrown out into the fire and burned. Uh, the image of a dead branch here is just someone who, who might outwardly identify with Christ, but they're not actually united to him. And the way that, that God knows that, or the way we even might know that, is that they don't bear any fruit. And so I wanna be really clear here. Bearing fruit is not like a performance-based system of acceptance. It's just the evidence that distinguishes genuine Christianity from pseudo-Christianity. And it's not even like we're supposed to always be able to tell the difference. I think Judas is a good example. Judas identified with Christ. He was in the 12, and none of them knew that he was the betrayer. Remember when Jesus said, one of you is gonna betray me, and they were all like, is it me? I don't even know who, who he's talking about. It wasn't obvious, but Jesus knew. And so let's just, you know, this business of pruning and cutting and throwing into the, this is God's business, but it is a reality. I think what we should do is just heed it as a warning that this is real and that we should not base our assurance 
of God's love for us on our performance or on how we compare to other people. We should base our assurance on our experience of his presence and the fruit that only he can produce in our lives. All right, these are the parts of the image. Jesus is the vine, true Israel. He's the source and hope of blessing for the world. Uh, we are the branches, and the expectation for us is that we bear fruit. And the Father is the vine dresser. He prunes fruitful branches, he cuts off dead branches. All right, so he's just telling us, this is how life with God works. And once you kind of see it in the image, the next step is obvious and vital. Verse four, abide in me and I in you. This is the invitation. Abide in me and I in you. I don't want you to miss just how amazing this is. He's commanding us, this is a command, abide in me, but it's really an invitation. Think of it like this. Let's say you're at a concert in which you can't get in. Tickets are sold out, it's completely full, there's just no way you're getting in. You're on the outside looking in. Uh, but I come up and I hear your story and I'm like, hey, I'm actually friends with the band. I'm a very important person, I'm a pastor, and uh, I'm friends with the band. I've got front row seats, I've got backstage passes, I'm gonna go hang out with the band after the show. And so let's just say I, I say to you, hey, come with me. Well, that's a command, right? But, but it's an invitation. <laughs> I'm inviting you to come and share in my glory, right? If you come with me, then you get all the access that I have. You sit on the front row, you go backstage, you hang out with the band afterward. If you don't come with me, then you're on your own. You're gonna miss, you're gonna miss the whole thing. Jesus is inviting us into his life. He's saying, if you're in me and I'm in you, you get all the access that I have to the Father. Everything that belongs to me belongs to you. But if you're not in me and I'm not in you, then you're on your own and you're gonna miss the whole thing. The invitation is not reluctant. He beckons us to come. The word abide occurs 10 times in eight verses. He is, he's not gonna let you miss the point. Come, come to me, come get all that I have. He is eager to share his life with you. And the invitation is not just to a one-time event. Um, the word abide means to make your home in. And so Jesus is saying, come to me and stay. Like take up permanent residence with me, be completely enfolded into my life and work. What an amazing invitation. To abide in Christ is to have and to experience all the gifts of grace that God has given us in Christ. And to have the life of Christ pulsating through us so that we might bear much fruit in his name. If we don't respond to the invitation, verse four says, uh, if a branch does not abide in the vine, it can't bear any fruit. Verse five says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I know some of you read that and you're like, well, that's not true. I can do a lot of things, actually. That's right. We can be productive and successful in some sense apart from Jesus at all. So that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is things that only God can do. Like only the Spirit of God can transform your character in a radical way that, that he does. 
Only God can give you the capacity to, to love people as he has loved you, which is the command throughout this text. So obviously we can do lots of things without Jesus, but he's trying to get at the fruit that is what only God can do in our lives. In this text, he points to things like answered prayer, obedience to commands, divine joy, sacrificial love, bearing witness to the world about Jesus. You can't do that on your own, not in the way God wants you to. So how do we stay connected to the vine? How do we, how do we respond to this invitation? Now, we're gonna spend the rest of our time in the instructions because that's what you really wanna know. What do I do? Here it is. That's actually the first thing. The first thing is to recognize is there's something to do. Abiding is something we do. So yes, salvation is a work of God. It's a gift of God. But we receive the gift. We enjoy the gift. Our lives are different. We live differently because of the gift. And so in the same way, we, we have to respond to the invitation. Uh, you could imagine it like this, like God has set before you a bountiful feast. Your part is to eat and drink, taste and see that the Lord is good. In, uh, in John 6, Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000, and it's, it's pretty impressive. And so the next day, the crowds gather to him again, and they want more food. And Jesus calls them out on it. He's like, hey, you guys are only here because I gave you bread. That's what you want, but you're looking for the wrong kind of food. He said, I'm the bread of life. And then he said some things that were strange. They were strange to them. They're gonna sound strange to you, but this is what he said. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So there it is. How do you abide in Jesus? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Is that cleared up? <laughs> Should we keep going? I think to understand what he's saying here, you have to see that he, he actually uses three different words. He uses the word eat, chew, and consume. And what he's getting at, I think, is that we are to take Christ into us. That's the image. We are to internalize his words and his works. We are to chew on them, consume them, especially his work on the cross where his body was given for us, where his blood was shed for us. We had to take these things into our mind and into our being so that they become part of who we are. Our identity and our purpose is staked on them. That's what he's saying. Abiding in Christ means feasting on him in this way. And he gives us a few main courses here. He gives us some things to feast on. Uh, the first thing he gives us is word and prayer. And he puts them together. So we're gonna look at them together. Verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So he's, he's developing the image here. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What does it mean for his words to abide in us? Um, I love the image of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel had a vision that God set before him a scroll. It was his words were on the scroll. And, and then God told him to eat it. This is what Ezekiel says. God says to Ezekiel, eat this scroll. 
and then go speak to Israel. And then Ezekiel says, so I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And Ezekiel says, so I ate and it was in my mouth, surprisingly, sweet as honey. Isn't that great? I would suspect that I'm gonna eat a book it's not gonna taste good, but this book, this book somehow is sweet as honey. I love this image. Eat the book. Take his words into you so that they become part of you and then speak them. Man, do you have, do you have this kind of hunger to eat the words of Jesus, to consume them? I talk to a lot of people and they say things like this. I hear this all the time. Uh, I know that I really should read the Bible more. Listen, that's not hunger. That's not hunger, that's duty. Nobody's going, I really, I know that I should eat more. No, you eat when you're hungry. Here's the thing about developing a hunger for God's word. It comes by reading it. Like the more you read it, the hungrier you get for it. It's weird because with real food, the more you eat, the less hungry you are. But with the scriptures, it's the more you eat, the hungrier you get. And so if you don't feel a deep hunger, you just need to dive into it with faith, asking God to help you. He'll create the hunger. The table is always set. It's always there. We have unbelievable access to the words of God. You just gotta eat. I know you're busy. I know you got shows to watch and stuff, but, but if you wanna be truly fruitful, this is how you do it. Abide in him and let his words abide in you. There's no other way. Now, look how this is connected to prayer. Um, verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and I'll do it. Well, how does that work? Ask whatever I want and he's gonna do it? That's why it's connected to the word because here's how it works. As the words of Jesus find a home in us, as they become part of who we are, they change us. They transform our desires and our thoughts so that what we start to think about is what God thinks about and what we want is what God wants. And when that happens, that comes out in our prayers. We start asking things according to his will and, and he always does them in that case. The way that you can see this happening in you is that your prayers start with God instead of you. Like right now, most of the time, my prayers, if I just start praying, it's gonna start with me. It kind of starts and ends with what I want God to do. But when I'm in God's word and it's having this effect on me, my prayers start with him. Like, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. When your prayers start that way, then you can move into give us today our daily bread and so forth. Because your wants are aligned now to God's wants. When we want God above all else and we ask according to his will, he does it. That's how we bear fruit. That's the fruit he's talking about. If you're not in the word, if you're not engaged in meaningful community where people are speaking truth and love to one another, your prayers will probably always start and end with you because you'll just be turned in on self. That's not a relationship. That's a transaction. 
I think parents, especially parents of teenage kids, they understand this dynamic. We experience this. I've got two boys, she's 22, one's almost 18, uh, so that they're grown men. And what I want more than anything with them is to have a close relationship with them. And what they want is gas money. <laughs> Not all the time, but, but if it was all the time, like if what characterized their approach to me was always just like what I could do for them, and it was never like having a relationship with me, I think over time, I would be less inclined to help them. But if their aim was to have a relationship with me, like if that's what they really wanted, then they would get all the help that I could give thrown in, right? And so if you want what God gives more than you want God himself, you're probably not gonna get either. But if you want God above all else, you're gonna get him. And then you're gonna get all the help and resources that he can offer. Abiding in Jesus is seeking God above all else, in his word, in prayer. Here's the second pair of things Jesus gives us. Obedience and love. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, it has something to do with obedience and love. Verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I think this is the most profound thing in the entire upper room discourse. Jesus is saying, I am one with the Father, and the Father is one with me. We are in each other. We have this relationship of mutual love and glory and joy and mission. It is mysterious and amazing. That's what the Father and the Son have. And what Jesus is saying is, this is the model for the relationship that I have with you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And I am inviting you to abide in my love, to share in this life that I have with the Father. Can you think of anything that you would want more than that? To abide, to live in his love? How do we do it? Well, we do it in the same way that Jesus did it. How did Jesus abide in the Father's love? By obeying him. All through John, Jesus has been saying things like, hey, the words that I speak, these are not coming my own authority. These are the words that I hear from the Father. The works that I do, these are not of my own power. These, these are the Father doing his work through me. His whole life is characterized by attentiveness to the Father and obedience to the Father and dependence upon the Father. On the very night that he spoke these words, he went out to pray, knowing that the cross was before him. And he didn't, he was anxious about it. He asked the Father, hey, if you could, if we could skip this part, I would do that. I'm in for that. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. And as Paul says, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus abided in the Father's love by obeying him. We abide in Jesus by obeying his commands. The command that he gives in the upper room and in this passage is to love one another as he has loved us. So you could say that we abide in his love by loving one another. And this is where all this stuff just comes together, the word and the prayer and the obedience and the love. Because if you go try to love people 
Even lovable people, much less the other kind. If you try to do that on your own, you're gonna find out you actually cannot do it. You can't sustain it. You just can't. And so you're gonna feel your need to draw upon God's love. You need to experience his mercy and his compassion and his kindness to have the resources to be that way for somebody else. And so you'll pray. You'll ask the Lord, Lord, I need, will you teach me how to do this? Will you enable me to do this? Will you sustain me in it every moment of it? And when you pray that, guess what? That's what God wants too. He's gonna do it. And when he does, when he gives you the desire and the capacity and the power to really serve and love someone, not for your sake, but for theirs, when that actually happens, you know that that's different. You know that that's not you're doing, that it's something God is doing. It feels different because it feels like, like I'm giving myself and yet I feel like I'm getting more than I'm giving. How could that be? Because the love of God is being poured into our hearts by his spirit. The life of Christ is pulsating through us. It brings so much joy, supernatural joy. That's the whole point. That's what Jesus says in verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I've been trying to do this very practically. Um, One thing I love is to talk about myself, my strengths, my interests and hobbies and those sorts of things. And when I think about being fruitful, like my default mode is, it's me being fruitful is me saying things to you, like in conversation. It's like, you're gonna get the things that I have, that's fruitful. I I understand this sounds embarrassing to say it out loud, but that's what's happening in my mind. And so I've been, I've been asking the Lord, would you help me like actually pay attention to the other person when I'm talking to them? Ask questions about them, their strengths and interests. Ask you, what would you like to say in this conversation? How might you want me to speak or not speak? What does this person need? I cannot tell, I mean, for me, that is so hard. And trying to do it has made me more aware of how bad I am at it. And like, I have to pray before the conversation to have any hope of it at all. And then during the conversation, I'm praying. Okay, Lord, I feel myself wanting to go back to me again. Will you help me? And it's just this moment by moment dependence upon God. For me, this is what it means to abide in Christ in these very practical ways. On the few occasions where it's happened, like where I really have been more about the other person than myself, it has felt so good. What's interesting about the conversations about me and when I make them about me, in the moment they're kind of fun, later I feel empty. I feel almost hungover, like just sapped. But when it's about the other person and when it's about God using me for the good of the other person, I feel so much joy. That's the whole purpose. That's what it means to keep in step, stay connected to Jesus moment by moment. Our desire to be useful productive, fruitful, it's ultimately a pursuit of joy. And so all the stuff that we're trying to do on our own is really an attempt to find joy, but this is where the joy's at. Lasting, genuine joy is in doing the works of God by the power of his spirit. That's where it's at. We abide in Christ by giving ourselves to the word and to prayer, to obedience and love, and if you really try to devote yourself to that, it, it, it ends up feeling kind of daunting. And so Jesus leaves us with these words of assurance. Verse 16. He says, look, you did not choose me, 
but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my Father in my name, he may give it to you. You know, when we think about being successful and and productive, there's a lot of pressure that comes along with that. Because we've got to figure out like what we're good at. We've got to figure out who we are and what our purpose is. And then we've got to go make it happen. And just like when I'm just operating on my own, I, that's what I feel. I feel a lot of pressure. But Jesus says, no, this, you feel pressure because you think it's on you, but that's not, it's on me. I chose you. I appointed you. I'm the source of the fruit. The gospel of Jesus is the good news that the pressure is off. If you are in Christ, then you have such assurance and confidence because you know that God is always with you and for you. And if Christ is in you, then you have such power and you will see it in the way that God works through you and in the fruit that shows up in your life. I've been talking this year about expectancy Uh, the end of last year, this is the word that God put on my heart, is to be more expectant of him. Now, expectancy doesn't have to do with doing more for God. So when I thought about what it would be like to be a church that's more expectant of God, it didn't translate into like, we're gonna do more stuff. Because expectancy is really not about what we can do, it's about what God could do. It's about seeking what God could do, praying for what God, depending on him for only what he can do. It's a call to abide, to rest in Christ's work, to wait on him, to trust him, and to see what kind of fruit he produces. Let's ask him uh, to help us be an abiding church in this way. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.